Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Tom. Welcome. I hope you're enjoying this uh, beautiful fall day. I love the fall. September is awesome. Best time of year, right? Most wonderful time of year. I'm not dissing on Christmas, but just uh, want you to know that. She was 18 years old when she gave her life completely to God. And for her particularly, that meant her entering into a community of the Sisters of Lorento in Ireland. Imagine this, at the age of 36, she moved to Calcutta, India. And there she founded the Missionaries of Charity, and she sacrificially served the poorest of poor for over 50 years. After Mother Teresa died in 1997, her journals were discovered, and the content shocked the world. Mother Teresa revealed that the love of Jesus that she spoke so often about and modeled to others, personally, she struggled to experience that. And she writes these words, My God, I have no faith. I dare not utter the words and thoughts that crowd my heart, afraid to uncover them because of the blasphemy. If there be God, please forgive me. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. I am told God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. Mother Teresa's doubts about faith, if you follow her journals, were really not tied to her questioning the intellectual coherence of the Christian faith. There was not an intellectual deficit, but in her journey there was an experiential one, a deep experiential deficit. The love of God that she so deeply longed to grasp was a love that often eluded her grasp in her daily life. And I'm grateful for her transparency because I think many of us can resonate in our faith journey with the doubts, or at least some of the doubts, and the dissonance of Mother Teresa's faith journey. I am so grateful how she puts it, because it resonates so deeply with my own journey. I am told God loves me, and yet nothing touches my soul. I remember as a young boy singing in Sunday school, I grew up in church, one of my first songs I learned went like this, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. And over and over again we said, those words. Now, this song does speak to the great truth of God's love being built on the strong and immovable foundation of biblical revelation. Amen on that. But I soon learned in my own journey there is a difference between cognitively comprehending that God loves me 
and actually experiencing that love in the very depths of my heart, in my mind, in my soul, in my body. Isn't it true we can hear the hopeful good news of John 3.16, amen, right? Like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But at the same time as we hear it, we can also struggle, can't we? In the very depths of our hearts with the question, what about me? Does God actually love me? And how could he love me after all I've done or not done or where I have been? Isn't it true, friends, that one of the hardest things for us to grasp is that God loves us more than we can grasp? So how do we grasp a love that at times can feel so out of reach? This is where the Apostle Paul takes us this morning in a remarkable text of transparency and hope in the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul prayerfully longs for each of us to experience that transformational love of God. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Now notice the literary genre of our text this morning. It's an actual prayer of Paul. And let's recall, if you've been a part of our series, Paul has already offered up a prayer in chapter 1, and he does it here again in chapter 3. As thoughtful readers of the text and listeners, it should arrest our attention. Why the repetition in such close literary proximity? This is very unusual for Paul. So Paul is not only saying something with his prayers, he's saying with his proportionality of the prayers, something distinct. Now you'll also notice that there is a lot of overlap between the, these two prayers, but there are some distinct characteristics. This prayer has a particular Trinitarian emphasis. And what Paul seems to be saying is that it is in prayer that the warm flame of Trinitarian love shines most brightly. Let's keep that in mind as we look at this text. In this text this morning, I'd like to, us to explore three ways we experience Trinitarian love. First, in prayer to the Father. Second, in the filling of the Holy Spirit. And third, in growing intimacy with Christ. This is where Paul goes. These three ways. First, in prayer to the Father, notice verses 14 and 15. Paul begins here. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Now you'll notice he's done this before in the book, or the letter, but Paul again begins his prayer by saying, for this reason. Do you see that? And it raises the question for us, like, what reason? What is Paul's logical connection? In his literary structure, he has these deep logical connections. What is it here? Now, actually, this is a very difficult question. <laughs> and New Testament scholars wrestle deeply with answering this question. I don't know if you know that, but it seems so innocuous and simple, but it's actually rather complex. But there's a wide range of views here. But let me simply say that Paul, I would say, is contemplating the amazing good news of the gospel he has been writing about up to this point. Imagine a being chosen as God's beloved before the foundation of the world, of Jews and Gentiles, right, coming together as a brand new family in Christ the Messiah. But Paul also, if you look at verse 13 before, may also be very closely connecting verse 13 here. Because in verse 13, he highlights his pastoral concern for these believers that he is concerned about because he is concerned that our faith is going to fade in the daily challenges of life. My sense here is, and this is common in Paul's writing, that 
Paul has an amanuensis, or a writing secretary right next to him. Some text he will say, I'm, I'm literally writing this, so he's probably dictating this. And this amanuensis, or recording secretary, is recording what he is writing, what he's saying. And all of a sudden, Paul stops, and he gets down on his knees and begins to pray, and his recording secretary records this specific prayer, okay? This is what's going on here. Now, notice the primacy of the who in Paul's prayer. This is really important to Paul. Paul begins by addressing God the Father, and he utilizes familial language. And Paul makes the point that God the Father is the Father of all. Notice every nation, every people. He also reminds us that God has a big family, and Paul, as a member of that family, has direct access to his Father. That's the idea. Paul's prayer seems to be addressing God the Father first. Now, this is really fascinating, isn't it? There is a multidimensional aspect to it, and in a mysterious way, there seems to be that the Father in the Trinitarian realm is the gatekeeper or door opener for this kind of love. We don't know all of it, but it's fascinating to, uh, to contemplate. Now, while Paul will speak about individual faith, an individual experience here, I don't want to minimize that or individual responsibility, his primary focus here, hear me carefully, in his prayer and throughout the letter is both grammatically and thematically not on my individual me, as important as that is, but the collective we. Remember, he's writing to a local church. Our collective experience of Trinitarian love and the Father's experience of his love for me are woven together and love for us in this beautiful prayer, okay? Now, one of the things we have discovered in our exploration of Ephesians is Paul repeated and his strong focus on sound doctrine, okay? The first three chapters and the importance of sound doctrine in a local community of faith. Now, from the beginning to the end, Paul embeds in his prayer the soundest, deepest doctrine of God himself. It was A.W. Tozer in his classic work, Knowledge of the Holy, who said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Paul would say amen. And his prayer really builds to this. And I wanted to simply say, because I'm often asked, either in my office or in conversations across our campuses, as a local church, are we staying committed to sound doctrine? Okay. And I, I say, I hardly amen. Keep praying for that, right? But notice... Paul anchors sound doctrine in his prayer in the doctrine of God himself. There are other important doctrines, but notice where he anchors it. And we do too as a church family. We're a part of a larger uh, church family called the Evangelical Free Church of America, and we are deeply committed to sound doctrine. And our doctrinal statement begins with the doctrine of God. I'm going to highlight that. We don't do that real often. It's very important for you to see that if you're newer to Christ's community or our doctrine really matters and our doctrine statement matters. But I want to just simply reminds you of our doctrinal commitment that is deeply Trinitarian, okay? I think we have it up here. We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, eternally existing in a loving unity of three equal persons or divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his glory. Okay. So Paul, again, in his prayer, emphasizes the Trinitarian nature of God with all its glory and all its mystery. Now, let's step back and reflect a moment before we go on. Paul's prayer here reminds us that the church, the local church, is to be truth-filled. 
And it's also to be prayer-filled as a community of faith. So let me step back and ask some questions that I've been thinking about in my own journey and as I look at our congregation. What may be keeping us from becoming a more prayerful community? This is not uh, a place of guilt. It's a place of challenge, okay? Is it possible our anxious hearts have grown cold and our prayers have been diminished through many things like fretful worry, excessive busyness, disordered loves, and a host of distractions? Because of our life circumstances, discouragements or disappointments, increased cultural hostility to our faith, is it possible that many Christians today are losing heart? When life feels like it's slipping away from us, when we are at the end of our rope, you've ever been there? Our Trinitarian God feels the depths of our suffering beyond what we can know. And is it possible that we are trying too often as his church in our time to take things into our own hands rather than through prayer, place them in God's sovereign hands. Now, while respectful political engagement in the public square has its important and proper role for us as dual citizens, it must never become a substitute for consistent, prevailing intercessory prayer. And let me just say, what we need most in our nation, in our land, and in the church is a spiritual awakening that only prayer can move God's heart toward that end. Are we taking things into our own hands, or are we getting down on our knees? That is what I think Paul challenges us here in modeling. Are we relying on our own puny resources rather than looking to our Heavenly Father to provide what we need, to protect us from evil and harm? And let me just say transparently, what I am discovering, what I've discovered in my own life, in my own faith journey, is that even when life is really tough, And there are times it is. When evil seems to be unrestrained in the world, and there are times it seems that way, right? When grief, doubt, disappointment, and discouragement threaten to overwhelm me, it's very easy for me me to lose heart. Scripture talks so much about losing heart, the danger of losing heart. But I've seen something else in my journey that I'm much less likely to lose heart when I'm on my knees. The loving and welcoming heart of God longs to hear our heart cries and our joys, both. And when I'm on my knees, I often experience a greater sense of God's presence, his peace, and I experience a greater sense of his love for me. So unlikely, as Paul is modeling here, it seems that prayer fans the flame of Trinitarian love. Prayer fans the flame of Trinitarian love. And when our prayer diminishes, the Trinitarian flame of love grows dim. But when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, Trinitarian love glows bright. And this is where Paul goes next. Notice the second way we experience the richness of Trinitarian love in our own experience is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Look at me at verse 16. Notice with me as we enter it how both the who of Paul's prayer and the what of Paul's prayer emerge again here. Verse 16. That, which is the what, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. That's the who. In your inner being. So here in verse 16, Paul moves, you'll notice, from the Father to the Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. Paul prays for the Ephesian believers that they would experience the Holy Spirit's abiding presence and power in the very depths of their being. Notice the text. Now let's not forget 
that at the end of chapter 2, Paul describes the local church as what? A holy temple. That is, a dwelling place for the triune God, notice the text, by or in the Spirit. So if we are followers of Christ, our individual bodies and our collective body as the body of Christ, we are a people and place in space and time where God's very presence dwells. Let's just stop and think about that for a moment. What does that mean? That God's presence, if you're a follower of Jesus, indwells in you and in us as his people. That truth is some of the most mind-blowing truth imaginable in Holy Scripture. And here we have, in Paul's prayer, a delicious mystery, don't we? It means that God's presence, his Holy Spirit, is always with me and us. That his presence will never leave me. That means individually and collectively we can truly know him and be known by him to experience growing intimacy with him. Think about this. The Holy Spirit is with me, knows everything about me. The Holy Spirit is part and partner in my daily life, at home, at school, or at the office. The Holy Spirit is in my thoughts, my words, my actions, and my relationships. The Holy Spirit actually prays for me, the scriptures say. So can you imagine him praying for you this week? throughout the day, in your workplace, your classroom, and praying that you'd experience a love that reaches deeper than any of your fears or sin. This is stunning when you think about it. And later on in Ephesians chapter 5, we'll see in one of the new uh, messages upcoming in verse 18, Paul will exhort the Ephesian believers to live into this new reality. That is literally to continually be being filled with the Holy Spirit. We often talk about that, and if you're newer to faith or you've been around a long time, what does that mean, right? Let me just unpack a little bit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, being filled with the Spirit means that in an expectant faith, joyful submission, heartfelt obedience, and contagious hope, we allow all aspects of our embodied lives to be increasingly empowered and controlled by the Holy Spirit. That is, to be spirit-filled as individual apprentices of Jesus and to be part of a spirit-filled local church. How do we know the spirit is a move? Well, we see the fruits of the spirit. They're experienced in our own lives and in our relationships. The fruit of what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is the evidence of a spirit-filled congregation, a spirit-filled life. The local church, by its design, is a supernatural community. It is created and empowered and sustained by the Holy Spirit. Now, there is so much we could say, and we'll say more in the series, about the role of the Holy Spirit, but let me just highlight a little as an appetizer. The Holy Spirit is essential in us coming to Christ. The Holy Spirit seals us securely through all eternity in Christ as well as nurtures our ongoing spiritual formation in greater Christ-likeness. So often, in our understanding and pursuit of prayerful intimacy with God, the Holy Spirit does not get enough attention, I don't think, in our minds and hearts in our daily lives. What Paul is saying in his prayer, what he wants most for us, is that the Spirit of God would lead us to a deepening, deepening love of God and the, experiencing the welcoming heart of God. Now, I want to encourage you, I don't do this very often, to do a personal study on the Holy Spirit. 
from the first chapter of Genesis to the ending chapters of Revelation. And what you will notice is the fingerprints and footprints of the Holy Spirit are evident all through God's amazing good news story. And let me just remind you of a couple things. Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. That is, the Holy Spirit is our truth guide. The Holy Spirit also empowers us for bold witness of the good news in our world. The Holy Spirit not only prays for us, he is also with us when we pray. It actually helps us to pray. God the Spirit intercedes for us in the darkest valleys of our life. Those dark nights of the soul when we simply can't pray. When words simply fail us. Paul describes this in Romans as groanings, divine groanings beyond human words. But perhaps most important in the scriptures is the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus and his great love for us. And this is where Paul goes. He goes from the Father to the Spirit to the Son. And this is the third aspect of experiencing Trinitarian love in our lives and our community. And that is a growing intimacy with Christ. Now notice in the text, you're following along, he continues his prayerful theme that these believers would be strengthened with power and experience Trinitarian love. Look at verses 17 through 19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that transcends or surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now, there is a lot there, okay? But he is building to a prayerful crescendo. And what Paul longs for us is a deeper intimacy with Christ, a growing experience of notice the language. He's fighting for language. He's wrestling with the limitations of his ability in language, the immeasurable, unfathomable love of Christ. Paul's great prayerful passion here is that we would be more intimate with Jesus. We'd experience on a daily basis his indescribable love for us. Now notice his metaphorical language. His metaphorical language of being rooted and grounded connotes the deep depths and unshakable security of this love. The unendingness, the bindingness of God's love, the never letting go of his love for us. The love of Christ is so vast, so deeply felt by God himself for us. And Paul describes it in these amazing geographical or parameters of, of, of broadness, right? The breadth, the length, the height, and depth. So Paul passionately prays that we might increasingly grasp the limitless love of Christ, that we may experience the fullness of the triune God and the indescribable joy of Trinitarian love. One New Testament scholar, I love how he captures this. Let me read it for you because he does it better than I can do this. He says, the apostle is simply telling us that the love of Christ is too large to be confined to any geometric measurement. It is wide enough to reach the whole world and beyond. It is long enough to stretch from eternity to eternity. It is high enough to raise both Jews and Gentiles to heavenly places in Christ. It is deep enough to rescue people from sin's degradation and even from the grip of Satan himself. The indescribable love Paul is using here is the Greek idea of agape love. It is an unconditional godlike love. It is an echoing of Trinitarian love, a love reflect, reflecting the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this amazing loving synergy of the triune God. 
It is a Trinitarian love supremely demonstrated by the Son on a cruel cross where Jesus laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine. One of the great hymn writers of the church, 17th century hymn writer, wrote over 600 hymns. Can you imagine that? His best hymn that historians say, the most amazing, he's often called the father of English hymnody, Isaac Watts, is the hymn, maybe you know it, is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Isaac Watts puts it this way as he gazes on the gore and glory of the cross. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet? Or thrones or thorns compose so rich a crown? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. This is where Paul takes us, like Isaac Watts, to the foot of the cross through saving faith in Christ, that we would experientially know the Trinitarian love of God supremely expressed in the cross of Christ. It is a love that surpasses knowledge, an experiential love that fills us with the fullness of God. It is a love Isaac Watts describes as so amazing, so divine, but it demands what? My soul, my life, my all. Isaac Watts not only captures the glory of this love, but the transformational reality of this love in every dimension of our life. A wonderful little book that is written a couple years ago by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. I highly recommend it to you. He puts it this way. It is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated, made too much of or exaggerated. We must not miss where this prayer of Paul is placed in the letter to the Ephesians. This is often missed. Can I press into that for a moment? It is a glorious transitional bridge between the indicative and the imperative of this letter. What do I mean by that? In the first three chapters of Ephesians, they are primarily written in an indicative mood. That is, indicative mood is the assertions of truth of who God is, what God has done, and who we are in Christ. But beginning with chapter 4, as we're going to see next week, there is a massive shift The mood will shift primarily to an imperative mood. That is, the implications of this truth of how we we ought to live in light of every dimension of our Monday lives. Our work, our family, our marriages, our local church community, which Ephesians is going to begin to unpack in the days ahead. Paul's literary, indicative, imperative bridge of prayer must not be missed. It is the connecting tissue of both. It helps us to remember who we are in Christ how deeply we are loved, but it also empowers us, this kind of prayer, to live our lives in the world as we are called to do. Prayer, prevailing prayer, intercessory prayer is the link, it's the bridge. It's the path to experiencing increasing Trinitarian love in our life and our community. So Paul ends his prayer, right, with this hopeful expectation that there is so much more that awaits them and us, right, the greater sense of expectation of what we can experience in Christ. More than these Ephesian believers can ever imagine. And Paul highlights the glory of the church and of Christ the Son. Look with me how he ends it in this grand benediction in verses 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul's prayer plumbs the immeasurable depth and breadth of Trinitarian love. And he scales the highest heights of the most brilliant New Testament rhetoric, perhaps, 
But like Mother Teresa, each of us may struggle with experiencing that kind of love in our own daily lives. It is true, one of the hardest things for us to grasp is that God loves each of us as individuals more than we can ever grasp. So how do we grasp a love that can feel so out of reach in our lives? Now, research in interpersonal neurobiology helps us here. It may surprise you as well as attachment theory, but it helps us to understand, as Scripture declares, that we were created by a loving God, primarily with loving relationship in mind. That we as image bearers are hardwired for relational love with God and with others. Christian psychiatrist and author Kurt Thompson, who was here with us a while back, reminds us of such an important truth that echoes Scripture. We arrive in this world looking for the one looking for us. Let me say that again. We arrive in this world looking for the one looking for us. And Kurt puts it this way. Think about this. Every newborn comes into the world looking for someone looking for her. And Kurt goes on to say, all sin, pretty straight, long statement, all idolatry, all coping strategies in which we indulge are ways for us to satiate our hunger for relationship, our longing to be known and loved, our desire to be desired. Friends, from our earliest days, our earliest waking moments, each of us asks this deep question. Am I lovable? Can anyone truly love me? Paul in his magnificent prayer written over 2,000 years ago answers this deep soul longing question for all of us. And he does it with an emphatic yes. In Christ, you and I are loved with an everlasting love with a Trinitarian love, a love experienced. Not just cognitively grasped, but one deeply known in our intimacy with Christ. And it is in prayer where the flame of Trinitarian love is fanned in our hearts. A Trinitarian love where we will never be left alone. A love that can be absolutely and fully trusted, that will never let us go. So may we become a more prayerful community. And as a prayerful community, may we be more fully like Christ and may we experience the Trinitarian love that we were created for, that we have been redeemed for. For the love your heart and my heart so deeply longs for. Let's pray. Father, your word reminds us all throughout Scripture that we are loved with an everlasting love. And transparently, many times we refuse to believe that when we're caught up in the own, own junk of our own life. Lord, may these words, you know I prayed this week, not just be a cognitive or doctrinal exercise, but may it reach into the depths of our hearts Father, you love us with a love incomprehensible. In Jesus' name.